Hello and welcome to our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today we're going to be going over the timeline of an uncivil war. Once again, this is specifically the American Civil War. And before we get started, I owe you all an apology. I misspoke last podcast and said that North Carolina was the first to secede, which is not true at all. It's actually South Carolina. I'm so sorry about that. I don't even know how I got it wrong. Our notes clearly said South Carolina. I think it's because we were right at the end and I had my eye on tea time and accidentally didn't catch that slip. Now that we've cleared that up, we can start. So we can go ahead and pick up right where we left off last week when I definitely said South Carolina not North Carolina. After the secession of South Carolina in December of 1860, as a response to the election of President Lincoln, six more states are going to join them and secede as well in the following January. Those states are going to be Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. And one month later, in February of 1861, the seceded states at the time, seven states in total, are going to come together at the meeting of Montgomery, Alabama. And over the course of two days, they are going to officially establish the Confederate States of America. And I think this is often where people get the idea that the Confederacy fought for states' rights, because this new government they form is definitely pretty heavy on the power, mostly belonging to the states as opposed to the federal government. Remember, they're very big on individual state pride, so that will be reflected in their laws. In Montgomery, they are also going to make Jefferson Davis president. This guy was a really safe bet for their first president. Before secession, he had held office as a Mississippi senator. He also fought in the Mexican-American War and was even appointed Secretary of War in 1853 by President Pierce. And of course, he was a member of the Democratic Party and people felt that he all around embodied the essence of the values of the South. And more pointedly, he held the same interests of the elite planter class. Though the government was beginning to take shape for the Confederacy, there still had not been an official battle that had taken place yet. The battle that's going to be recognized as the formal beginning of the war is the Battle of Fort Sumter, which occurred on April 12th to the 13th. Fort Sumter was in South Carolina and was Union-owned. The first shot fired is by the Confederates, and they will be the victors. One intriguing thing about this battle is that there would be no casualties, which most certainly is not the case for the rest of the war, as we know, it was the bloodiest war America had ever fought. Another notable thing about this battle is that the man in charge of the Confederacy Army was General Pierre Beauregard. And as for the Union leader, that was Major Robert Anderson. The reason why this is so interesting is that Anderson had been Beauregard's instructor when he was a gun student, and Anderson thought he was so talented, Beauregard became his assistant for a year after he had finished training. And that's something we see a lot in the Civil War. The commanders of both sides have known each other and even been friends who fought side by side in past wars. One thing most people have heard about the Civil War is that it was fought brother against brother. And that's pretty much not true at all. Most average soldiers on both sides were not actively fighting against their own family members. That's not to say it never happened, but it most certainly was not the case the majority of the time. That is an idea that was eventually adopted, more out of trying to reaffirm national and cultural brotherhood in a way. Once the war was over and the Union was reestablished for good this time, they wanted to make it seem like the war was so sad because it was like a domestic family fight. But the only case where that's going to hold some truth is with the commanders. And it can be argued that they had once been 
been brothers in arms, even still, that's different than the depiction that we're going to see later on in the retelling of the Civil War. But moving on, before we go much further in the battles and such, let's briefly set up what both sides have going for them. The North had some serious advantages on the South. First of all, they outnumber the South by an insane degree. The North had a population of about 22 million, while the South only had around 9 million. Keep in mind, about 3.5 million of that population were black people who will not be allowed in the military of the South, nor would they want to be, but we will get into that later on. And as for the number of troops, by the end of the war, the Union will have around 2 million people enlist to fight, while the South only ever reached about 900,000 people to join. Another advantage the North had was something that coincided with its booming industrialized economy. They have an extreme amount of resources on hand, especially when the war first begins. They have more provisions for their troops in every way. Textile goods, weapons, food, literally everything soldiers could need. They also had a considerable amount of railroads already built, which made getting their troops supplies much faster. They also have a pre-established nation, whereas the Confederacy is going to be a brand new little baby government. So the organization of the North gives them an upper hand too. As for the South's advantage, they really only had one thing going for them, their military leaders. They have some seriously big names among them, Robert E. Lee, Thomas Jackson, who is more commonly known as Stonewall Jackson, and others as well. And not only are they well known, they're insanely gifted strategists as well, which is why the war went on for so long. And an advantage that both the Union and the Confederacy share is that they both hold such strong convictions of their cause. Now, soon after the first battle, Abraham Lincoln on April 15th is going to officially announce there has been an insurrection and he calls for 75,000 volunteers to suppress it. And we all mostly have heard the Confederacy referred to as rebels before, but that was a very strategic choice of words on his part. He is clear from the beginning the Confederacy will in no way be recognized as anything but an uprising within the United States, refusing any formal acknowledgement as a separate government at all. After Lincoln does this, four more states will secede and join the Confederacy. That's going to be North Carolina, for real this time, Virginia, Arkansas, and Tennessee. But what he also does by making this standard early on, it's going to effectively set the tone of how the remaining Union states will view the war. And keep in mind, Lincoln is going to be very dismissive of the war being about slavery in the beginning, though most clearly is. He maintains this stance of it being nothing more than rebellion because one thing he does not want to happen is to lose the border states. This is another thing that comes as a shock to most people. There are actually four slave-holding states that are never going to officially secede from the Union. Those states were Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. Pretty much all of these states were wicked fundamental to the Union for various reasons, and he did not want to risk losing them because if he overtly was like, we're going to abolish slavery, they would all turn into that one SpongeBob meme and be like, all right, I'm going to head out. And not only is he going to deny that it's about slavery, he's going to low-key promise not to abolish slavery in the border states. Also, don't forget, lots of Northerners, the poor white population in particular, are not super into the idea of black people having any type of rights. They saw a newly freed slave force as a direct threat to their own ability to get jobs. So if he wants to continue to have a committed military force, he can't give the main demographic of soldiers any reason to be unwilling to go to war for something they thought would hinder their own own rights. And while it's easy to vilify the South for often trying to deny that the war was fought over slavery, Lincoln was a big offender of contributing to that narrative in the early years. And of course, once the South loses and the country slowly but surely over time is going to culturally shift into viewing slavery as immoral, 
The South is going to distance themselves from that truth because, though they lost, they wanted to maintain some sense of dignity within their southern communities. And if they can convince the world and themselves that their ancestors didn't fight for the evil institution of slavery, but rather the still highly debated importance of states' rights, they look less wrong. But we won't go too far into this subject because we're going to be taking a very close look into how the narrative of the war shifts throughout the years. So you can consider that antidote a sneak peek into future podcasts. Yes. So moving on, what we see in these early months is both sides winning battles off and on. But one of the first serious wins that takes place is the first Battle of Bull Run. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. The details of battles and strategies and all that, not my thing. I find it super boring. I can tell you there are some seriously interesting battles that happened during this war. And if that's your thing, this one in particular, you might really enjoy learning about. I encourage you to look it up on your own. But we are not going to go into it because it's not really the focus of this episode. And furthermore, I don't want to put myself to sleep. But I will say that the battle takes place in Virginia and it's going to be a huge win for the Confederates. It is also going to be the bloodiest battle that the United States had ever fought fought up until that time. So this battle, in a lot of ways, is the opener to that aspect of the war. This is also going to be the battle that Thomas Jackson earns his nickname Stonewall Jackson because of his superior leadership. And, you know, the first Union generals like General Irwin McDoyle, who is in charge of the Union forces at the first Battle of Bull Run, are seriously no match for the Southern ones. It's almost embarrassing how badly they're going to lose in the early years. Strategically, the South just destroyed them no matter how much they were outnumbered. One thing the North does have going for them, though, is that they really step up their game when it comes to protecting the capital. Because if the South had been able to capture Washington, D.C., given all their success early on, there was a good chance that the war would have ended a lot quicker and with a much worse outcome, including the possible victory of the Confederacy. But yeah, the North will maintain the capital for the entirety of the war. And that's because they put a crap ton of forts surrounding it, like pretty much every single inch of it. And fun fact, Lincoln almost got shot once while he was at one of those forts surrounding DC, which technically makes him the only president to ever have been under open fire from enemy forces while in office. Now, you might be thinking, when the heck is the North going to fix their lack of effective generals problem? Have no fear, Ulysses S. Grant is here. You know, the guy who later on becomes the 18th president of the United States. He's really going to make his first big mark in the war in February of 1862 when he gains Union control over a fort in Tennessee. Grant's nickname is going to become Unconditional Surrender because this dude is quite determined to say the least. In many ways, that's like his whole tactic. Just freaking attack and attack and bleed the southern troops dry until they give up. He exhibits no restraints. He takes and he takes and he takes. No, really, he exhibits no restraints. He makes it clear that he doesn't care how many troops he loses. He often will not even pull out of a battle no matter how bloody it is. Grant is going to mark a sort of turning point for the North. Up until now, they had struggled to win any major battles and largely due to the lack of leadership. But, under Grant's determined command, it helps to not only physically strengthen the Union Army, but it also fuels a sense of restoring the faith back into the Union, as well as their ability to win the war. He even further ensures his support as a Union general by 
earning a big victory for the North in the Battle of Shiloh, which took place in Tennessee in April of 1862. Now, let's skip forward a bit and talk about another huge turning point of the war that takes place in September of 1862. That's going to be the Battle of Antietam. Now, Robert E. Lee is going to be the Confederate leader of this battle. And what you got to understand is that he had won several impressive battles in a row. Boom, boom, boom. And with each battle he and his troops were able to keep pushing onward more and more north until they reached a specific part in Maryland, which is when the Battle of Antietam took place. And this is another pretty interesting battle for those interested in further research. It even includes a lost order, the Order of 191, which is pretty neat, but again, not gonna spend too much time going into detail about the battle itself. Basically, to sum it up, Lee had his troops spread out, which after receiving word that his numbers were spread so thin, the Union commander, George McClellan, is going to use that opportunity to then attack the several Confederate bases. This battle is going to become the single bloodiest day of the Civil War. And though after the first day of war, both armies will rest, the Union will be ready to start pushing back and it will effectively tamper out Lee's invasion of the North. This battle is not solely notable due to its bloodiness, but also because of the impact it will have in the political sphere. This victory by the North is going to assure Lincoln enough for him to officially issue his Emancipation Proclamation in January of 1863. When Lincoln finally presents the Emancipation Proclamation, he isn't actually going to emancipate all the slaves. He actually technically only emancipated the slaves in the rebel southern states. He's going to do this for several reasons. One main thing is that there had been a significant number of runaway slaves who joined the Union forces. But remember, the Compromise of 1850 had the Fugitive Slave Act, and Lincoln is still operating as if the Confederacy is part of the Union. And even though they are at war, if he allowed the Fugitive Slave Laws to consistently go unfollowed, he was kind of breaking his own rules of the federal government. So by freeing the slaves in the Confederate states, he is effectively removing that particular conflict of interest. Now with the proclamation, they were no longer legal property, which overrides the slave master's rights to owning them. Furthermore, something else that's going to be a huge concern for Lincoln is that the Confederacy had been in contact with Britain. In fact, several of the Confederate army leaders had been trying to persuade Britain to aid their cause, which wouldn't be so far-fetched of an idea because Britain happened to be very dependent on the South's textiles. And since Lincoln had been so adamant before about how it wasn't about slavery and more about preserving the Union, Britain kind of had no overt reason not to only help the Confederacy, but to recognize them as a separate government completely. And as we've mentioned before, that's going to freak him out big time. And the thing he cannot have happen is for a big cultural player like Britain offering any type of support to the South. If that occurred, all the advantages that the North had would be severely undermined. Their population, their resources, and their organization would all be overshadowed once any type of foreign aid was acquired on any major scale. One thing we will not see in the Emancipation Proclamation is an overwhelming support from radical abolitionists. Most with those views do not feel this proclamation goes far enough, and they see it more for the political move it is, as opposed to actually working towards freeing all people from bondage, as Lincoln made no attempts to emancipate the border state slaves. 
lives. In May of 1863, some major things are gonna go down. First of all, Union forces really wanted to focus a ton of energy on taking out the presence of Lee and his troops in Virginia. And in the Battle of Chancellorsville, Lee is gonna have one of his most great victories of the war, as he was super outnumbered. But he doesn't even get to enjoy this victory, cause Stonewall Jackson is gonna pass away from injuries, which is a big blow strategically for the South. And in the following month, the Union is gonna take a huge victory when Grant and his troops will cut off the last Confederate defense in Mississippi, completely cutting them off from use of the Mississippi River during the siege of Vicksburg. In June of 1863, the bloodiest battle of the war takes place known as the Battle of Gettysburg, when the Union and Confederate troops quite literally run into each other on accident. And after almost three days of fighting, the Union will be the victors here. This is one of the biggest wins for the North that takes place in the entire war. It completely crushes any hopes that Lee had for invasion of the North. And yet the war still goes on for two more years. And that's so much of what the Civil War is. It's just a back and forth. The Union wins some. The Confederate wins some. It's a horrible, bloody game of tug of war. And I think that's reflected culturally as well. People are freaking tired of this war. Both the North and South are going to have to enforce drafts because of how many soldiers they burn through. And there's actually going to be some serious draft riots in New York City in July of 1862, where a ton of people feel like the draft disproportionately affects poor and working class people because rich people could pay a fine and not have to serve if they were drafted. And here's the thing, this feeds into the long festered hatred many poor white people have towards black people. Because instead of being mad at the rich who could pay their way out, they're gonna take their anger out in a very violent manner on black people. They feel that they are being sent to war and will likely die to help free slaves who they regarded as not fellow humans who deserved liberation, but a threat and future competition in the workforce. Enraged poor white people will burn down buildings, go after the wealthy, particularly the ones who employ a large number of black people, and of course they're going to severely target black people. Trigger warning, lynch mobs ran rampant, a black orphanage was burnt down, there was complete chaos. Lincoln had to send in troops to end the riots, the same troops who had been exhausted by the brutal Battle of Gettysburg. Yet another fine example of misplaced aggression towards black people. I think what makes it even sadder to see this, if that's even possible, is literally just days before these riots, the first official black infantry, the 54th Massachusetts Infantry, will be created. Now, technically, Lincoln had allowed black people to join the army in 1862, namely runaway slaves that the Union commanders would have joined the army to exploit their numbers, and they were able to serve in the Navy even before that. But the 54th Regiment is going to be the first all-black group. Mind you, though, all the troops were black, but they still only let a white man lead the group. So, yeah, they still very much didn't want to see black people in charge at this point. And this regiment is not going to be welcomed right away, like, at all. We will have a whole episode about this, but one thing to keep in mind is that lots of people bring up the 54th Infantry to showcase a big turning point for the acceptance of black rights. There's some element of truth to that statement, especially given how bravely those soldiers will fight later on in the war, eventually losing their lives in the name of freedom at the iconic Battle of Fort Wagner, where they served as the front line to the Union Army. But nobody can really make the argument that it changed anything culturally right away. Other troops mocked them and treated them extremely poorly, as well as them being viewed as nothing more than a political tool for Lincoln's agenda, and huge riots breaking out right after they were formed. Though the riots didn't directly pertain to them, is very indicative of how slow cultural change is going to take place. So while the 54th 
4th Massachusetts Infantry is very iconic and has a patriotic history that we will discuss later on. It's not going to be iconic in the way people try to present it. But moving forward, more battles, more battles, so many more battles. But finally, we're going to reach when Lincoln gives his famous Gettysburg Address in November of 1863. And of course, this is going to send shockwaves throughout the nation. Lincoln was yet again very divisive in his speech, even in the sense of making it in Gettysburg, where the most bloody battle had been fought. He used their loss of lives to help remind the Union how important it was to not only finish this war, but to win it. To honor the words of the founders of the nation and preserve the principles of this land. Because if the North gave up now, all the lives that had been lost, all the blood and tears that had been shed was in vain. To fight for this union was to pay homage to those who had fought before them. He will reference the Declaration of Independence heavily, saying that this fight was about fighting for equality and freedom, just like the revolution had been fought over. Because citizens were growing so tired of the war and there were so much feelings of it being pointless and futile, or at the very least, not worth the loss of life that had ensued from it. So now he's going to preach about equality because he needs to keep the public interest in the war, passionate enough to keep fighting. And that's exactly what it does, too. Of course, it further enrages the South and partly rekindles their desire to win against the Union. And even in the North, Copperhead politicians will not promote this speech. But this is also going to effectively send in a new wave of importance to the war that had not been utilized on such an extreme level yet. The concept of liberating those who were now considered free peoples. It was clear that before the war, as well as during it, the abolitionist cause had been slowly but surely gaining more traction. By playing into it with promises of emancipation, Lincoln found a way to essentially further weaponize not only abolitionists, but black people who were eager to fight and earn their freedom. He was dangling over them. Yes. But anyway, the effects of the speech helps boost morale and we do see a resurgence of purpose, especially from diehard abolitionists in the black population. And black soldiers are going to play a big part of the Union's success in different parts of the Deep South in particular, namely in Virginia and Georgia. There are actually 15 black men who receive medals of honor in Virginia. Just an FYI, they are never going to be allowed to fight in the Confederate Army, not ever. And of course they wouldn't have wanted to, but it's important to note that they are pointedly kept out of the military. People like General Lee, who saw himself more loyal to Virginia than to slavery, are actually going to argue that black people should be allowed to fight and help defend the Confederacy by the end of the war when things look bad for them. But that would never be okay with the majority of the South because there were few things that their white supremacy dependent society was more scared of than any type of equality for black people. I think it's often depicted as if black people didn't want to fight for the South because they would be fighting against their own interests, but that's not the whole truth, it's deeper than that. This is one more way to encapsulate that the South was fighting to maintain a culture of racism, and they would rather lose than see Black people as equals. But as for the Black fighters in the North, while the war definitely in that aspect is finally truly being fought for freedom, and passions remain high, keep in mind, both sides are very tired at this point. It's a dark time socially. So many young men had been lost, and the injuries that this war leaves, both physically and mentally, 
are intense. It's really hard to keep spirits up at this point. Resources, especially in the South, have really gone dry. And things really are not going to get much better for the Confederacy. Though they still win battles here and there. They were still totally cut off from access of the Mississippi River. And things only worsen with the Battle of Peachtree Creek and the Battle of Atlanta. Both fought in Georgia in July of 1864. They are not only the first major battles to be fought in Georgia, but they both are super big Union wins. And the Battle of Atlanta is going to have a serious casualty count for the Confederates. In October of 1864, they are going to receive another big blow at the Battle of Cedar Creek. Under the command of Jubal Early, a Confederate army is going to try and sneak attack the Union forces. While it's successful at first, Union reinforcements come and the Union will win this, keeping their stronghold of the Shenandoah Valley. Also, in November of 1864, Lincoln is re-elected. That's something I always forget that happens during the war. And that's interesting that he wins because, you know, the moment he was elected for the first time, war broke out right after and there literally had not been peace since. His whole first term was war. What a hard time to be the guy in charge. Every battle that takes place after this is just going to keep digging the South into an even deeper hole. It was becoming more and more clear that there was no hope for a Confederate victory. That's not to say they weren't winning some battles, but most of the major battles were almost all won by the Union. And given the strategy of Grant and the North in general, it was even further clear that the Union would win. At this point, both sides were hoping to wear the other out, but it's clear with the advantages that the North had from the beginning, more population and resources, they're not going to be the ones to run out first. And that's the thing. Just thinking of the last stretch of the Civil War, the entire last year of fighting in 1865, it literally wears me out. So much death and so little resources to speak of. A very bleak time indeed. But what's going to be the final nail in the coffin is the meeting of Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. After a failed attempt to break through enemy lines, Lee decided it was finally time to meet with the Union armies and formally surrender. When I tell you this man was tired, I mean it. He was an old man who had been fighting for so long with little rest and lots of people have said that by the end of the war Lee had begun to lose some of his mental sharpness but to what degree of truth that is we'll probably never know. It's really just speculation. But anyway this is going to be a quite iconic meeting not only because it was the mark of the end of the war but because of how Grant is going to handle Lee's surrender. Now Grant had met with Lincoln before this point explaining to Grant in detail what he wanted to take place and how he wanted it to be handled once the inevitable surrender had come. See, Lincoln was clear that this could not be ended with a treaty. That is something that takes place with two separate governments. And as Lincoln had refused all this time to recognize the Confederacy up to this point, he was certainly not going to do it now. So when Lee asks Grant to write out his conditions for surrender, Grant is going to write a letter in lieu of a treaty. And as Lincoln instructed, the terms are super loose. Again, we are not going to see normal treaty terms here. The letter basically says this, just put Put your guns down and go home. It's over. And of course, this is done to keep the idea that they were coming back to the Union and they would be met with open arms by the government that they had been away from for so long. I swear, Lincoln is always so strategic like this. It seems like he's always thinking a couple steps ahead. And listen, on paper, the Union was nice. And we have no idea what Reconstruction would have looked like under Lincoln, really, because he was assassinated before he had the chance to see that through. But we are not going to see a warm family 
labor union for a long time after the war. What we are going to see, however, is a long journey to solidify the unity of America. And like we discussed in our podcast about white unity, that is going to take precedent over all else. The resentment that they had was long from being gone, even after years of violent fighting. I think it's so important to understand not just the effects of the political moves like Lincoln's, but also the intent. And I think in this podcast, we've made it a point to illustrate his intentions, just like we do with most political things that concern civil rights for black people. Because while the war was fought over slavery, it wasn't fought, at least in the beginning, to free slaves. And that's a notable difference. Lincoln is the president who freed the slaves, but he's clearly not a true justice bringer. Just like we talked about before in past podcasts, when historically later on, after the war is over, Northern politicians want to enforce civil rights, not because they want black people to be equal, but because they were hoping to make themselves look better since they had been the ones to support emancipation and wanted their risky move to turn out well and save face. And then they made small and in some areas futile attempts to allot voting rights to black people, not because they wanted black voices to be heard, but because they wanted to use the black voice and help consolidate Northern political power in the South. And then after the party switches in the 1900s, civil rights matters are sort of left discarded and they don't care as much about trying to maintain true equality because it stopped serving their interests. And it's not being neglected because they think that they have solved everything and made everybody equal because that has so clearly never really been true. Racism has persisted throughout the years, with little enforced changes being made until big civil rights movements take place. Because when they are able, political parties will allow white supremacy to fester as much as they can until they are no longer able to avoid it. In so many cases, the only time black people are going to see any change in their often dire situation is when they can be used as weapons for certain situational political gain. Which, when you think about it, that is a really deep form of reconstructing slavery. Promising change and opportunity and equality to black people as some form of bait to push their own agenda. That's why so many times the attempts of gaining true equality fall short of being successful. And that's why we have to be careful about not being so easily tricked by performative progressive actions from those in power. In the case of today's context, the people in charge are still not invested in real social change, but rather they're seeking to quell the masses or to tame the waters. They're attempting to shut us up by providing us with false peace offerings that don't change anything other than making it seem as if they support the cause. No real reform and no real progress. Yes. And with that, I think that's going to be the cutoff. We're going to take a break, get some tea, and we will be right back with you. And now a brief message from our sponsor. This week is brought to you by Franklin's Litter. Franklin is Ren's cat who roams around the apartment aimlessly every day. If you want to make sure that Franklin has access to the litter he needs to live his life freely, you can donate to Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi account. Franklin's litter. Every cat has to pee. All right, we're back. So today I am having a tassan that has some cinnamon, cardamom, and ginger. It slaps. What about you, Elisa? What are you having? I am having organic cumin, which is a black tea. From China. From China. <laughs> <laughs> Rin, tell us more about the tea I'm drinking, please. <laughs> um, it is a black tea from China, and it's one of the highest grades of this particular tea. It's actually called first grade Kimon, which means that it's like pretty top notch quality. <laughs> All right, so I guess we'll just start off with artists. 
my artist for this week is Kenny Elrod. Okay. I really, really like his music. His music is just like nice and warm. He's a black artist from Chicago, Illinois. And the song that's my favorite by him is actually also one of his most popular, which is Sunrise, which is a nice song to really relax to. Really fun. All right. How about you, Elisa? My artist this week is Anthony Ramos. He is most well known and you probably know him for playing John Lawrence and Philip Hamilton in Hamilton. But a lot of people don't know he makes music on his own outside of Hamilton, and it's really good. The album has a lot of really good songs. The one that I'm going to recommend that it's just so much fun to listen to is called One More Hour. It's literally a bop. We seriously walk around the apartment singing this song to each other at random times because it's that good. Yes, so you should definitely check out his music and follow him on social media. He is actively very vocal and outspoken on a multitude of social issues, so definitely give him a follow. And as for news, there's actually a group that is called Walls Against Trump. This is such an awesome group. It's a combination of concerned moms, aunts, and grandmas, even veterans, really anybody who's brave enough to join. Essentially what they do is create a human shield out of their own bodies to protect protesters and deter police from using force to break up protest lines. They're especially trying to help protect against the secret police from Operation Legend, which is a completely unfounded group that has no business existing in a country where people are meant to have the right to protest peacefully. But yeah, they're a great group. Another big thing that's been circulating the internet recently, which you've probably heard about, is Tom Cotton's thoughts on slavery. Now, Cotton is an Arkansas senator who says that slavery was a necessary evil. And when we tell history in any other way, we're not being truthful. And boy, I'm personally upset that he said this as a historian. He's trying to say that by offering a more inclusive history curriculum, it's leaving out important parts. That's literally not true at all. Teaching history in the light it should be viewed today is actually one of the ways that we can help break the cycle of contributing to systemic cultural oppression. We aren't trying to rewrite history and change what really happened. We're trying to tell it more truthfully. Because what really took place is oppression. And to paint it in any other light is a lie. That should be changed, period. There's no way around that. Yes. And speaking of changing the curriculum, our two activists for this week are Winona Guo and Priya Volchi. They are both the co-founders of the Choose organization, which aims to address this gap in the curriculum when it comes to intersectionality. Their goal is to bring racial literacy to the classroom, which is really cool. Yeah, and with that, I think the episode is pretty much finished. Just a reminder, you can always find us on social media. Every major platform, we're there pretty much, so go check us out if you want. That's also where our Ko-Fi link is. <clears throat> Just a sneak peek into next week, we're going to be looking at the aftermath of the war and what Reconstruction looked like, as well as the average mindset of the people coming fresh from the war. We'll see you next week. Bye!